So for me, chasing passion would be about following uh, the things that you're interested in, that you're excited about, um, that you enjoy doing, that you you think are really important. Um, so I've talked a lot about uh, working on things that I've enjoyed doing, but there's the other side is, is things that you, you feel are really important and are worthwhile to do. And, you know, that you feel will make it make a difference. You know, we've talked a lot about the kind of research side of things. Um, but, you know, I spend quite a bit of time teaching. Um, and I, I feel that's kind of my opportunity to, to give back. Um, I, I find I always feel that research is quite a selfish uh, exercise. You're following your ideas. You're following your innovations. Um, but teaching is quite a generous activity. You're there to help other people learn, to help other people understand. Uh, to, to me, that's quite a, a giving thing. Um, so, you know, uh, in, in terms of chasing passion, um, chasing your research ideas is maybe selfish and chasing your teaching ideas is kind of generous. So it's, it's, it's important to be able to, to give back. Welcome to the Chasing Passion podcast. My name is Dom and I'm your host. Each week, I bring on a passionate person to help you discover your own passion in life and how to begin pursuing it. Thanks for spending some time with me today and let the episode begin. Chris, welcome to the show. Hi, Dom. Thank you very much for inviting me along. Thank you for coming on. So I guess a good starting point um, is, can you perhaps tell us about your background, who you are, what you've done in the past, uh, just to provide some context to listeners about you, I guess. So I guess if you were at a party and somebody asked you, what do you do? Um, how would you answer that question? Okay, so I'm a computer scientist. I'm an associate professor in University College Dublin in the School of Computer Science. Uh, I'm currently head of school, uh, but that's a rotating position. We rotate it every few years. Um, yeah, so that's my my current uh, job title. Um, do you want me to go back, do the history? Let's go all well? the way back. Let's go all the way back. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> um, so I went to Queen's University in Belfast, mm -hmm. uh, did a degree in computer science. Uh, it was a four-year degree. Um, we had a year out in the middle of it, uh, so I worked in industry in the third year in a company, a uh, software development company in Belfast. Um, and at the end of the degree, I was looking for job uh, opportunities. I liked the idea of staying in the, the island of Ireland, and I got a job in what was then Anderson Consulting in Dublin. Uh, it's now Accenture. Um, so I worked with... Uh, Anderson for a year and I, 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 did, I, I was kind of restless. Um, I wasn't terribly keen on it. So I decided to do a PhD in electronic engineering in Dublin City University. Um, I did that for three, four years working on speech coding. Um, and at the end of that, I joined a company called Broadcom Aaron Research in Dublin, which was working on telecommunications research and software. Um, I stayed with them for a year and a half, and then I took a job with Masana, which was uh, an Irish fabulous semiconductor company. We designed chips for networking. Um, I worked with them for five, six years, becoming uh, vice president of engineering with them. 
Uh, it was a really exciting time. That was kind of startup days and dot-com mm. bubble and then dot-com bust. <laughs> uh, so it was an enjoyable time. Um, the end of my time with Masana, then in 2003, I joined uh, UCD, uh, where I've been since. Wow, so you're always in a very technical background, you know, related to computers, engineering, and so on. But I'm very curious to know, like, what was the initial spark to, you know, study computer science? Like, what made you study computer science in the first place? So I guess the real question is, what were you like as a kid? Like, what were you interested by? What were you curious about? Yeah, so as, as a kid, what, what really made up my mind about going into computer science was um, I persuaded my parents to buy me a home computer um, when I was about... Uh, I don't know, about 14. Um, so I'd always been interested in science. So I remember like reading science books and reading science fiction and uh, reading comic books and, and watching documentaries on science and things like that. I remember there's Cosmos by Carl Sagan mm. was, was a big thing. Um, and I, I'd seen home computers were kind of uh, hot at the time, kind of popular. So before that, computers hadn't really been in the scene. Um, you were, there were arcade games, you know, those slot machines, Space Invaders and things like that. I enjoyed playing those. So the only way you could kind of play those video games at home was to buy home computers, which for the first time had become affordable. You, you plugged them into your TV and used your TV as a monitor and you used a cassette player um, as your hard disk drive. Um, and there were about... Spectrum was about 125 pounds, which at that time was, you know, quite a bit. Uh, but it was still, you know, a, a household could, could households could afford them for the first time. Mm. Um, so I persuaded my parents to buy me one for Christmas. Um, I played, started off playing video games on it, and then um, the the cassettes for video games were actually quite expensive for for a school kid. So I used to buy these magazines that included program listings. Mm -hmm. I used to type in the program listings and then run the games. So it was a cheap way to get games. And then I, I started to understand the program listings. So then I started to write my own programs. Um, and I just got into that. And, and eventually um, I started to sell uh, a program mail order um, for, 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 for just fun. I mean, I wasn't making a huge amount of money out of it. Uh, it, was a, it was a peripheral called a Spectrum. So the Spectrum was like a drum synthesizer peripheral for the Spectrum. And I figured out a way to change the samples uh, so you can make different drum sounds with, with my program. Uh, so I sent it in for a review by a magazine and they uh, posted the review and uh, I, I managed to sell uh, copies uh, in across the UK from that. So that gave me wow. a taste of selling software and writing software. And uh, I spent a lot of time on it. I, ju I just enjoyed it. Mm. Um, so when it came to, to making my degree choice, it was either going to be physics or computer science. And I tried both at Queen's. The course was flexible and I just much preferred computer science. It was kind of easy choice from there on. Hmm. And, you know, at the age of 14 and obviously younger when you're reading all these books, um, like what was the initial kind of, you know, motivation? Like were you influenced by someone? Like what was the initial motivation for you to persuade your parents to buy a computer and learn how to program? Like were you influenced by someone? Did you perhaps see someone on TV or did you read about it? I'm just curious to know, like what was that initial spark that got you interested in, you know, that subject? Yeah, so it would have been... Um... It would have been TV. So there was there was a show called um, 
was it Tomorrow's World was on. It was like a weekly documentary program and they did the latest news in science and technology. Um, and the Sinclair ZX Spectrum came out as a low cost computer, but the BBC did their own computer, which, you know, looking at it now is really strange. So the mm-hmm. BBC branded a computer and they did a lot of pro uh, TV programs on the computer uh, and about the computer. Uh, so I watched a lot of those and the BBC was more expensive. So I went for this, the, the Sinclair spectrum. Um, so I, I guess it was TV. It just sounded interesting in technology and, you know, how do these things work? And, and um, I suppose video games was an element of it as well. How can you, uh, you know, to actually just play things. Um, so I think TV was a big influence. I remember before we got the spectrum, I guess, you know, my, my mom and dad were wondering, well, you know, is he really, is he really serious about this? And my dad took me up to a neighbor who was a ham radio expert. Um, so he had a massive aerial in the back garden and he'd uh, communicate with people all over the world using ham radio. It was wow. kind of bounced, bounced off the stratosphere kind of stuff. He'd be talking to people in Russia. Um, and... Um, he had a computer, so he had a computer to help him with, uh, I suppose, the scheduling and the frequencies and stuff for his his radio and antenna design and things like that. So my dad took me up and I, he let me do a little bit of programming in his own computer uh, on this neighbor's computer. So, you know, I suppose they, they realized that that was kind of serious. I was, I was into this. Uh, and then school decided to, to um, run the first computer course um, when I was in third year. Um, so the headmaster was a big deal. The headmaster took it upon himself to run this course for third years. And um, the only problem was uh, we didn't have a computer. So we spent from September to Easter talking about what a computer would do if we had one. And eventually at Easter, the first computer in the school arrived And it was, you know, it was a huge box of a thing and had about 1K of memory and green screen and all of that sort of thing. And it had to be shared between all the people in the class. So I was, I remember being really excited about the course, but I was disappointed. I I probably typed about three words in, into the computer over Mm -hmm. the course of the whole thing, the whole year. Um, So, yeah, I guess that was just the start of kind of computers in schools. Mm. Yeah, I always find that, you know, very interesting, like how do people find their interest in a certain subject? Subject, I mean, because uh, sometimes like I was listening to this TED talk by Ethan Hawke, the actor, and he was just talking about, you know, um, creativity and, you know, you have to give yourself permission to be creative. And he was kind of given given the story of him, like um, how he found his interest. So, for example, he went to this play and he just suddenly knew it was like, is this is it. I want to be an actor. And like, you know, for everyone, it's different. So for you, you know, when you when you were influenced by TV and you're like, oh, wow, that's a computer and, you know, I can do all this. So I, I always find that pretty interesting. You know, how do people find their um, interest in, in a certain subject? And yeah, I, I think it's really important when you're young to try out lots of things to, mm. to see what, what you enjoy. You know, you, you don't you don't know until you're exposed to it. Mm. Um, so it's at that early stage that you know, you have an opportunity, you have more free time, I suppose. Mm. Like I, I spent, once I got the computer, 
I spent a huge amount of time programming it and reading about it and learning. Uh, I taught myself assembly language and I taught myself basic uh, from books and stuff like that. And um, it's just the, the, the time just flew by. I was just kind of absorbed in it. Yeah. You know, just it was just it wasn't a chore. It was just something that I enjoyed doing, you know. Yeah. Yeah, you made good. You made a good point. Like the, I think the only way, like I'm still young myself. I, I don't really know much, but um, like I feel like the only way to do to to know what you want to do is just to try as many things as possible. And I mean, you just try one thing. You know, six weeks to twelve weeks, or even a year. If you don't like, you move on to something else, and eventually you will find something that you enjoy. And then I, I mean, then it's just go all in at it because I mean that's what you like. You said it doesn't feel like work. It doesn't feel like um you're wasting time. It just kind of flew by. So yeah, I, I think that's a really good place to. Well, it's a good thing to find um at an early age. And yeah, I mean, I I was lucky. I suppose what what I was interested in, I could get a job in. You know, I could get a career yeah. in. Get paid for doing it. It was a stable professional occupation. Um, you know, I suppose if, if what you're interested in is, is, is doesn't pay so much, it can be difficult to line things up as to what you want to do and what you can't, you know, what, what's going to pay the bills. Uh, but I was very, very fortunate in that I, I could build a career around my interests. Mm. And, you know, you finished, um, computer science and then you went on to study your PhD. Why did you study, well, why did you choose to study um, electrical engineering and pursue a PhD in that instead of, you know, uh, following computer science further? Like, um, I don't know. Uh, yeah. What, what was the, like, why did you move away from computer science into electrical engineering? Yeah. So, so the, what I did in electronic engineering was programming. It was all programming. Right. Okay. I wasn't designing any circuits or anything like mm-hmm. that. So it was really, there's kind of this overlap between computer science and electronic engineering where, you know, it, it, it's, it could be either. Um, so I was kind of at the computer science end of electronic engineering. Um, I suppose when I was finishing in Queens, I was offered a PhD position um, doing artificial intelligence in Queens. But at the time, artificial intelligence wasn't terribly impressive. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it was very, it was tackling very simple problems um, and mostly in a kind of an obvious way I felt. Um, so I didn't think that at the time there was going to be much excitement there. Whereas in electronic engineering and, and speech coding, um, it was actually an area that um there was progress being made in and there was products coming out in that area and there were things happening. So I've, I felt it was kind of more current and more immediate. Now, now things have changed. So you would say now that speech coding is, is done, you know, there, there, there's there, uh, speech recognition is still involved uh, evolving, but speech coding is largely done. It isn't changing that much. And AI is where things are rapidly changing. So, um, you know, if you're looking at what topic you want to research um, or work in, you, you've got to look at their, their waves hit things. You know, there are waves of technology. A field changes rapidly due to a new breakthrough. And that's a really exciting time to be working in that area. Um, but then maybe when all those sol- problems are solved, maybe that field goes into the doldrums for a few years until there's another breakthrough. 
So when you're as a researcher, if you're looking at what topic you want to do, you've got to be sensitive to, to what's happening and what's current and what's hot. Um, and also be sensitive to what you can reasonably do in an area. You know, there are some areas where you just need to be in MIT to tackle or you need to be uh, you need to have some data set to tackle or something like that. So you, you need to take on something that works for you. But also, you're trying to catch an area that's experiencing a wave change. Mm. Yeah, and I guess there's also the thing that you know you like you were kind of there early, early on the AI, and I f- and I feel like, well, at that point there wasn't much innovation in AI, and you know if you're doing it now, there's like there's a lot of innovation done. So I guess you kind of have to pick um, an area that um, kind of well that's growing, like you said, and you know what actually is speech coding. Um, it's probably like a very big question, but like just in summary, what 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 speech coding? It's essentially uh, compression, real time compression for speech. Oh. Um, so if you have an audio recording, um, it takes up quite a lot of space on the hard disk. So what people do is they convert it to an MP3. The raw the raw speech is uh, sixteen bits sampled at let's say forty four point one kilohertz so if you store that as raw speed audio signal it takes up uh, a lot of megabytes in your hard disk so people encode music as mp3 uh to to squeeze that file size down it sounds similar but it saves an awful lot of space in the hard disk to, to change it from raw to mp3 so you can do the same sort of thing with speech signals um you can you can take the raw files and you can use compression algorithms to reduce the number of bits, to reduce the file size. Um, and if you know it's um, audio uh, for speech, you can compress it even more aggressively than you can with music. Mm. So you don't um, you don't have to preserve as much of the high frequencies. You're not worried about symbols or anything. So at the time, there was a lot of work being done on trying to re- reduce the... Uh, to compress audio signals to enable the introduction of digital mobile phones. So at that point in time, when I was doing my PhD, there was kind of the transition from analog mobile phones, those huge old bricks <laughs> to the to the, the, the GSM standard, um, the digital. So, so mobile phones were going from analog to digital at the time. Mm. And a big part of that was uh, reducing the number of bits needed to transmit the voice signal. Um, right. So the the the, the audio uh, codecs for that were standard standardized uh, around in the 90s, early 90s. And those have remained the same ever since because you really, you can't do a whole lot better. Um, so those speech coding techniques that were established around the time I was doing my PhD are still being used in today's mobile phones. Um, to compress the voice signal so that it uses less um, transmission com- tra- tra- capacity and transmission, less bandwidth and transmission. Wow, that's pretty cool and sounds very complicated to do. <laughs> um, and you know, you were working in industry for a while, um, and then you switched to academia to you know being a professor. What made you do that? Why did you want to get into academia again? Yeah, so for me, this was a big decision. Um, so in going back to academia, I, I lost out quite a lot on pay. Um, my pay was quite reduced. 
Um, <laughs> I suppose the trade-off in that was I was able to do more kind of research work and also control more what I was working on myself. So I could, I could come up with my own ideas and direct my own research instead of having to kind of fit within the constraints of a company. Um, and I suppose teaching, I, I enjoy teaching. Uh, so that was attractive. So I suppose it was going from um, a very much a development. The company had reached a development stage where we were basically refining an existing product for the next years, several years to more a research environment where you have more flexibility to try out ideas. You can do new things. You can direct your own research into things that you're interested in rather than, you know, just having to uh, follow what the company wants you to do. Um, and at the time there was a transition in the company as well. The company was acquired by gear systems. Um, so there's a, we, we gone, we had been in small company startup mode uh, for the previous five, six years. So that was really exciting. We'd been acquired by a um, large multinational, essentially. So I felt the company was kind of going into a different stage and that that would be kind of big company, you know, less exciting stage in, in its development. Um, so I suppose those are, the, those are the two reasons. It was a transition point and uh, I decided to uh, go back to academia. Right, so you kind of enjoy the early startup stages and, you know, the freedom to do your own research. And on the topic of research, uh, like, what did you, like, what's your kind of main area of expertise? Like, what did you focus on in your research as an academic? So I suppose over the long haul, from my PhD um, through to around now, the, the, the main themes would be digital signal processing, um, which is this writing programs to process speech signals or communication signals. So taking a signal and um, um, processing it to achieve some goal. It might be to recognize some audio. It might be uh, some speech in an audio. It might be to uh, reduce the transmission uh, bandwidth. Um, it might be an image processing. It might be to detect objects. Um, so that's been the main, main theme of my research over the years. Mm. And I guess all of that, you know, writing programs, digital signal processing, all these things are just algorithms. Um, so like, I, I mean, you wrote a whole, whole book on the subject and um, poems to solve puzzles. So I'm very curious to know, uh, what made you write the book? And like, yeah, what, what was the initial motivation to write the book? Yeah. So, uh, I started the book about three years ago now and, the reason I wrote it was because I was noticing um, in the news media, uh, algorithms as a word was suddenly being mentioned all the time. Hmm. And algorithms as a word had been this obscure thing that computer scientists talked about um, and nobody else mentioned. And all of a sudden, newspapers were talking about uh, the Facebook algorithm. Uh, newspapers were talking about um, the algorithms being used in social media to influence elections. Um, just even recently, um, there's been, Boris Johnson referred to a mutant algorithm as uh, influencing the predicted grades for the A-levels. Uh, so suddenly algorithms had come into the mainstream consciousness as uh, 
as something to do with computers. Mm-hmm. But I think I had the feeling that a lot of people didn't really know what an algorithm was um, or how it worked or where they came from or, or anything like that. So the book was written to, to fill that gap. It was to, to explain to, to the general reader um, what an algorithm is, um, how it works, how, 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 well, how some of the most commonly used, some of the most important algorithms work, who, who invented them, uh, what sort of contexts were they invented in, and I suppose how are algorithms linked with computers. Uh, so the hope is it's kind of a primer for people that are trying to read behind the headlines a little bit and trying to understand how the world works nowadays. Mm. And I suppose, you know, you wrote a whole book on the subject, but essentially what is an algorithm then and like how does it work? So an algorithm is a well-defined sequence of steps that solves an information problem. So that's the definition, if you like. <laughs> we, we can kind of break that down. Um, so um, an algorithm is a, a method for solving an information problem. So it's a sequence of steps. So it's like, do this, do this, do this, do this, mm-hmm. and you'll solve a problem. So the, the simplest example that I use in the book um, is sharing sweets with a friend okay so if you have a friend bag of sweets and you want to share fairly you and the the schoolyard might go one sweet for you one sweet for me one sweet for you one sweet for me and eventually you come to the end of the packet and the sweets are fairly divided what's actually going on there is you're using an algorithm to divide the number of sweets by two so that each person gets the same number and you're repeating steps. You're one sweet for you, one sweet for me. Those are two steps. And you're repeating those over and over again until the packet is empty. So that algorithm um, has the effect of dividing the number of sweets by two. Um, and it, it, so that's an information problem, dividing by two. And the steps that you're repeating have the effect of solving the, the information problem. Um, I suppose... Another example I use is, is, is sorting books. Um, if you imagine um, you're a librarian, somebody delivers a thousand books in random order and you have to put them in the shelves in order. Um, the algorithm that you'd use to do that normally, the method that you'd use would be to pick up a book at random and put it in the shelf. Next book, you put it in the correct place in the shelf. Next book, you'd scan across, see where it should go put it in the shelf next book you'd scan across and gradually you'd move all the books over but all the books would be in order on the shelves and out of order in the floor and that's that's an algorithm called bubble sort um for organizing uh that you're using to organize the books there's a much much quicker algorithm called uh quick sort surprise surprise (laughs) um and it works in a in a different way um, you actually um, split the books, the unsorted books, into piles. Um, so the first split, you choose a letter around the middle of the alphabet, M, and you create two piles, one of the books with titles before M, one with the books with the title after M. And those two piles, then you apply the same process to. So the pile that's before M, you split it into um, using what we'll call the pivot letter, the pivot letter would be halfway between A and M. So this pivot letter might be, let me see, K or something like that. You get two piles there. 
And what you do is gradually you create all these piles. When the piles are all small enough, so when the largest pile is about five books, um, you sort each pile individually using bubble sort, and then you put the piles on the shelves. And it turns out that that is many, for a large number of books, that's many, many times faster. This splitting in pairs of piles and then transferring the piles in order to the shelves. That's way faster than the old fashioned bubble sort. So that's the power of algorithms. If you can think about a better method, a more efficient method of doing something, um, you can solve the problem much more efficiently, much more quickly. Um, so when the, the interesting thing about algorithms is kind of designing algorithms to solve these problems in better ways or solve brand new problems. And these, the methods of an algorithm can be applied by a human. You can do the steps one after the other as a human, or you can program a computer to do the same steps. So in developing, inventing an algorithm, uh, you're solving the problem but you're also opening up the possibility that that algorithm could be run on a computer and the computer could follow the same steps and uh, solve the problem even qu more quickly than the human, quicker again. So you get speed up from the algorithm, clever algorithms, and then you get the speed up from the computer. And a computer can nowadays can do billions of instructions a second. So it can do billions of steps. So algorithms are at the heart of computers solving problems. Um, if you have an algorithm for solving the problem manually, then you can code it up and run it on a computer. If you don't have an algorithm for solving the problem, then the computer can't do anything. It can't solve the problem. So the algorithm comes first, put it, program it into computer, and then the computer can solve the problem for you. Hmm. And then, of course, you can program in, into well, whatever language you want. And then I'm curious to know, like, why are algorithms important you know for the everyday person perhaps you know he or she is not technical uh, have has no interest in computers or how this thing how these things work but you know you hear a lot of them um, like world leaders for example like ray dalio at the bridgewater associates um ceo like he's saying you know if you don't understand code if you don't understand algorithms you're kind of falling behind because the world is moving in that direction so i'm curious to know like what's the motivation for like you know the everyday person to learn about this stuff why is it important I, I think there's two ways of looking at that. One is just about being informed about how the world works now. Mm -hmm. um, so, so much has moved, uh, so much processing is moving now being done by computers. Um, if you don't have an understanding of what's happening there, you're limiting your understanding of the world. So like Facebook presents a news feed to you of the what it thinks, what Facebook thinks are the news items that are more, most interesting to you as a user. And what the Facebook algorithm is doing there is figuring out um, who you're friends with and what they're looking at and using an algorithm to predict what you'll be most interested in. So if you if you understand that that's what's going on, you can interpret what's happening in the world uh, more clearly. You can understand what's going on. So um, so Facebook algorithm is one example. Another uh, example would be your investments in shares. So a huge amount of trading in shares is now being done by algorithms because they're so much faster than humans. 
So financial markets are now being moved by algorithms that uh, programmers control uh, to maximize their investment. So that's another area. Another area that we can start to see algorithms um, influencing is, is, the, is the justice system. So uh, some um, places, some cities in the US are experimenting with using algorithms for making decisions uh, within the justice system. Um, if you look at, on the scary end of the scale, if you look at drones, um, so aerial unmanned drones are being used in war zones at the moment, um, and they operate. They use um, algorithms for target recognition and algorithms to control the drones. Um, so, what happens is those algorithms become uh, more effective and start to take more control over what's going on and make more decisions. Um, what happens? I don't know if you've followed the Cambridge Analytica story where the course, Cambridge yeah. Analytica, yeah, it was a company which they use uh, social media to try and influence elections. So they use algorithms to figure out uh, what, um, uh, what voters could be influenced and bombarded them with advertising and propaganda basically to, to, to try and affect uh, the outcomes, uh, allegedly, of uh, elections. So there's a lot going on now in the world that it's, it's being influenced by algorithms. Um, even, you know, camera networks in, in some countries are being used to identify people uh, with face recognition automated. So what's happening there has a big has an increasing impact on, on society and the direction we're going. And I, I think it's important for, for people to be informed about what's happening and, and maybe uh, what's coming down the line. Um, if, if you don't understand algorithms and software, then, you know, you can uh, misunderstand what's happening or um, you can maybe be, uh, um, can uh, think that these things are kind of mysterious or, don't really know or want to know. I think the the the, the principles um, are understandable if they're presented in the right way, and I think it's important for people to uh, be conversant with these things in the current world. Hmm. And for someone who's listened to this podcast and they realize that, wow, okay, I really need to learn about, you know, algorithms and how they work. Um, where's a good place to go? Um, like, what's the best way to, to learn about these things? Because like, I mean, it's such an overwhelming subject. And I mean, there's so many different, well, paths you can take. But I'm curious to know, like, um, yeah, from your perspective, what's the best way to learn about this? Um, so obviously, my book is the, is the best book. <laughs> But, but but leaving aside uh, my book, <laughs> um, there 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 are some other uh, good books on the topic as well. Um, there's one by Hannah Fry, uh, who's a mathematician in the UK, um, called Hello World. is is a pretty good introduction. Um, that's the other one that I really a number of other books. Um, like surveillance capitalism um, are interesting, but they kind of look at it from the point of view of the impact that it's having on society. It's kind of um, 
a journalistic perspective, whereas my book is trying to explain how things really work. Um, so it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different way of, of looking at things. So the you, you get a lot of articles in the newspapers which are journalistic, what impact are computers having, but they don't really tell you what the computers are doing. Uh, so that, that would be the niche that my book's in. It's, it's trying to explain to you what the computers are really doing. Um, the uh, What other books are good? I see, a lot of the books on algorithms are actually quite textbooky, mm. uh, quite hard to read. You really need to be on a course um, to, to absorb them. Uh, there, there isn't much about how algorithms work that, that's available for the kind of the popular science reader. Uh, the other, as I say, there's my book and there's the one by Hannah Fry or the, the, the two that spring to mind. Hmm. Um, yeah, and I'll link both of these books in the show notes. And of course, your book is called Poems to Solve Puzzles. <laughs> so yeah, I'll link all these in the show notes and you'll be able to find them right there. Um, and in terms of the future, in terms of the future of algorithms and, you know, uh, yeah, where are they going? Uh, what do you think will happen? Like, do you think robots will eventually, like, write the algorithms themselves? Or, like, is it always going to be humans? Like, I'm just curious about your perspective of the future of not just algorithms, maybe, but, like, technology in general. Um, yeah, so in ways, um, robots are already writing the software. Yeah. Um, so... Uh, there's a, I, I have a chapter on, on the book or a couple of chapters on the book. Um, there's machine learning, uh, which is a concept where um, instead of uh, a human developing an algorithm and solving a problem themselves, uh, what they do is they write a pr- an algorithm that learns and they provide a large number of examples um, of the problem uh, solution and the algorithm learns um, what uh, to do in the different circumstances so that the original machine learning algorithm uh, is from the 1950s. Um, it was developed for playing chess. Um, so the algorithm um, looked ahead at all possible next moves on the chessboard and looked at what the position on the board would be. And for every position on the board, it came up with a score to how good it thought it was. So what the, the way, rather than write a program manually to figure out what the score should be for position, the developer um, wrote an algorithm that played lots of chess games against itself. And whenever the program beat itself. Um, it strengthened that scoring scheme. And whenever it lost, it weakened, if you like, that scoring scheme. So over a lot of games, it, it improved its scoring scheme. So it learned how to score positions on the board. So that technique is now being used extensively in artificial intelligence. And the difference is now we have very, very powerful computers. Um, so we can provide huge numbers of examples. So this machine learning approach is now being used uh, for developing self-driving cars with Tesla. Um, it's now being used for speech recognition um, in, in Siri and Alexa. Um, so it's a very, very powerful technique. And essentially, the 
human programmer is not figuring out how to write an algorithm uh, to do the speech recognition. It's just writing an algorithm to learn the relationship between the sound um, of the word and the textual version of the word. So the algorithm's been given lots of examples of people saying the same word and lots of other words. And it eventually realizes, oh, this sound means this word. Um, so there you have essentially a bot teaching itself um, how to recognize speech. Um, so this trend um, has really taken off, I suppose, in the last, let's say, 15 years. Um, and is going to increase uh, hugely. So I think manually writing algorithms will still be used for very specific tasks because you can, you can write the code very, very efficiently if you do it manually. Um, but this, uh, for very complex problems, this idea of the computer teaching itself how to solve the problem is, is going to continue to explode. And the problems that the computers will be able to solve uh, will become even more complex. Mm. Um, and we're just going to see that boundary of the, that limit as to what a computer can do. That bar is just going to get, continues to get raised. Mm. Now, I I always find this interesting because I always see, you know, computers, they can, like, it's like they're going to replace all the logical decisions we have to make, like company decisions, decisions, whatever. But I'm curious, are they, is it possible for computers to replace human imagination, human creativity, human, you know, just coming up with different ideas, innovation, I guess. Cause like, I mean, that's a very, like, it's a very complex thing to program within the computer. So I'm curious to know, like, do you think that's possible for computers to eventually replace human creativity? Is that possible? Yes, and I would say they're already doing it. Already. Um, so it, human creativity, um, if you look at a number of people, like even back 200 years ago, people that have theorized about human creativity and tried to say what it is, um, have often said that human creativity is actually a search, right? So humans think through lots of possibilities, possible solutions to a problem. And they maybe in their heads rule lots of them out and maybe try a few prototypes and rule out the ones that don't work. And then finally come up with a solution that works. And everybody says, oh, that, that's the light bulb moment. That's the piece of genius. Mm. That's, but it's mostly that piece of genius is a result of four or five years of hard work where they tried and failed on, on various other ideas. So in a lot of cases, human creativity genius is kind of a search process. They, they try trial and error until they find a good solution. Um, so computers are actually very, very good at that. Uh, they're very, very good at search processes and you try lots of solutions out until you find a good one. So an example of this recently is um, there's a company called uh, DeepMind in the UK uh, they've been acquired by Google and they wrote a computer algorithm which defeated the world's greatest Go player. And Go had been viewed uh, for 50 years as the final frontier of board games. Um, it's the most complex board game, far more complex than chess. Um, and people didn't expect computers to be able to beat the top humans for another 20 years. Uh, and just a couple of years ago, 
DeepMind computer defeated the best uh, human player. Uh, it actually defeated a uh, top three uh, human player and that hit the headlines globally. And then people uh, forgot about it. And in the background, DeepMind actually beat the number one player a year later, but nobody covered it because <laughs> humans were defeated by that stage. But what the Go players said when, when they looked at what was um, what the DeepMind computer was doing, they called it creative. They said that the DeepMind computer used winning strategies that hadn't previously been used by humans. Hmm. Okay. So they said that that was creative from the outside point of view, um, not knowing what was going on within the computer. Now, what was going on within the computer was a search process. The computer was playing itself and was trying lots of strategies. Far more strategies were tried than a human could ever try in their lifetime. And it just found strategies that worked well and kept them. Um, so the computer, we know that the computer was doing a massive search. Um, but the result of that massive search was it found new strategies that worked really, really well. So the person from the outside is saying, oh, that computer is creative. Uh, discovered something we hadn't before. But in a lot of ways, I think the computer is doing what the humans were doing. It was trial and error searches and finding a good one. Um, so I, I think we're going to see more of that uh, where computers um, appear to us to be creative, but it's really just the product of a, of a search uh, algorithm. Wow. That's kind of that's kind of scary in a way, you know, the way they're getting so intelligent. And are you worried about the future of computers and where they're going and AI, machine learning in general, the way that these technologies are evolving? Um, is there any like, yeah, is there any worry about the future? Uh, I think we should be concerned um, in the medium term. Um, I think um, humankind needs to put try and put in place limits um, mm -hmm. on what can be done with computers and what should be done with computers. Um, there, there's obviously a, a very large debate going on about this and, and a lot of high profile people have, have chipped in in the debate. Um, but computers are now becoming so powerful and so influential um, that I think we need to start looking at uh, machine ethics and how uh, the development of computer technology uh, is going to be controlled and limited in the future. Um, so I, I think there's enough there to say, be concerned about the medium term. I suppose the worry, uh, you can get to worried about it if you start to think that if it can be developed, it will be developed. Um, so if, if we, essentially if we're saying that this can't be controlled, um, and somebody somewhere will do it, if it can be done, then that's where you get to the worry stage. Hmm. And what's interesting is, you know, if, if eventually, like, we're going to be just integrated with computers, and in a way, we kind of are, because like, when you think about it, like, our phones are just an extension of us, like, if you, if we don't know a certain fact, we simply just Google it, and we, there's no, there's no need for us to store this information. And I know Elon Musk is developing the Neuralink, where they basically just insert, um, well, a computer, essentially, into someone else's brain, and just gonna, well, they're gonna do for, yeah. But like it's just it's just crazy the way you know like technology is moving and like it could really down it could really go downhill if we if if you if you like you said um we're not careful about it. Yeah, I mean the, the 
I think I think health is a big area where it's sensors now and compute power and batteries are getting small enough that these things are uh, increasingly on the body, um, mm-hmm. not not just on the desktop. Um, so uh, equipment to monitor heartbeat, uh, to monitor um, vital signs um, and bio uh, signals uh, are going to be used increasingly in the body for, for health reasons. Um, the Elon Musk Neuralink is almost like science fiction where you, yeah. <laughs> kind of, you thread uh, electrodes through the brain uh, to pick up the brain signals directly, uh, which is, which is, is, is scary. Um, I, I suppose, again, initially that has medical type applications. Um, so you, you can see that there are definitely trends here uh, to integrate uh, more with the body and, and make things um, faster, respond faster and connect faster with the brain. Um, so that's exciting. It opens up new possibilities, uh, but it also opens up new dangers. So. Mm. I always have the movie in mind. I think it's called Chappie. It's basically where there's a robot and when when he dies, well, he can just transfer his consciousness into another robot. And like, when you think about it, like that might be possible for our, like, well, not, yeah, it might be possible to do like in, in real life, you know, transfer our consciousness into another artificial object and then boom, we can just live on again with the same well, same level of consciousness, I guess. Do you think that's possible? Like just transferring your consciousness into a robot, essentially, or a computer, and then you can just kind of, well, well, you have to develop arms and legs and so on, but you get the idea. <laughs> is that possible? I, I think that question is very hard to answer at the moment. We really don't know what consciousness is. Hmm. You know, if you look at the current literature, people are really kind of guessing about that. And even brain function, the, there are two very large projects, one in the US and one in the EU, which are trying to understand how the brain works in more detail. Um, so we really are only kind of at, at the beginning of understanding how the brain works um, and consciousness. I, I don't think we really have a good idea. Um, in terms of transferring consciousness, it's it's for me, it's like the Star Trek teleporter problem. Are you really, uh, are, are you just copying your consciousness and then killing off the first one? Is it, re- you know, is it you? If you, if, if you beam, so Scotty beams somebody down to the planet, um, is that really you? Or is that a copy of you down there and the one on the starship gets destroyed? Right, um, yeah. So are you copying or transferring? I suppose that's the science fiction question, but I, I think what, you know, the, the issue that we have at the moment is, is we, we don't really understand how the brains work and we don't really understand consciousness. So um, it's, a, it's a while before we, we'll be facing that question. It's kind of interesting because like, you know, computers, like in a way, like we understand everything about computers because we created from scratch. But whereas when it comes to our own biology, when it comes to our own human brain, when it comes to our own, you know, yeah, ourselves really we don't understand ourselves and that's kind of um it's amazing the way like we understand computers technology more than we understand ourselves i feel like it should be kind of well not that it should be reversed but it's just kind of it's just kind of shocking the way you know we have so much understanding about technology computers yet we don't really know ourselves <laughs> yeah i mean the human body is far more complex uh than a computer hmm. uh now, Computer chips are, are uh, so the latest Apple processor 
now has 11 billion transistors in it. So the latest computer technology is pretty complicated, right? Yeah. Um, but but still, the, the human body is like exceptionally complex. Um, uh, so we we still have a lot a lot to learn about biology. Um, and for any perhaps you know people who have never well who never study computer science or never learn about coding never learn about algorithms um what do you wish these people knew so i guess if you were kind of giving a speech um in front of secondary school students and your your job was to inspire them your job was to inspire them to perhaps you know think about studying computer science or thinking of, of going into this technical role um how would you how would you inspire them like what, what do you think people should know about computer science I think for somebody trying to decide whether they would study computer science or not, um, you need to figure out if you enjoy it. So mm-hmm. what I always encourage um, uh, people in secondary school that are, that are asking um, about computer science is to try a little bit of programming. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's quite a lot of websites out there that uh, are good starting points. Um, we've used Scratch, um, which is kind of a, a graphical programming environment. Um, it's from MIT. It's a nice place to get started. Um, so it allows you to kind of dabble in it. Uh, and it, this harks back to what I did myself, kind of dabbled in it, and I realized I, I just got absorbed in it. So I, I think the key thing is for people to try it and see if if they like it. In terms of the, the long-term inspiration, you know, you would point to... Um, the you know the amazing progress that computers have uh, made and the impact they've had in society and, and you got to think it's going to be even greater. So you know if you're if you're a programmer, you you could be involved in in uh, working in a self driving car. Some of my uh, graduates that have done final year projects with me uh, joined Land Rover, uh, Jaguar down in Limerick, and they're working in self driving cars down there. Um, some other uh, graduates of our course um, are working in algorithmic trading in the London uh, financial district. Um, so there's really exciting opportunities to, to work in cutting edge technology. Um, so that's kind of the long term um, attraction. And, you know, there's, uh, there, there's good um salaries to be had in the area and good good careers. uh, So that's kind of the sensible way of looking at things. Uh, But at the end of the day, you, you, you want to be doing it because you enjoy it. Um, So the the place to start is to, to try it out and see if you do enjoy it, do a little bit of programming. Yeah. Well, I think it's a good opportunity to finish up the podcast, but before we do, I would love to ask you some rapid fire questions. So if there was a billboard, a big giant billboard, and everyone in the whole entire world can see this billboard, um, what advice would you, or what message would you put up on that billboard? So it might be a quote, it might be words of wisdom, anything that comes to mind. Uh, what would you place on that billboard? A non-commercial message. Um, can we go with quoting E.T.? Be good. We can. We can <laughs> Be good. Um, what's the best investment you ever made? Now, this investment might be time, it might be energy, it might be money. Just in general, um, what is the best investment you 
ever made? Um, yeah, I, I suppose it had to be my coding, uh, writing programs for the computer when I was a teenager. Um, uh, because, you know, that was kind of the foundation for everything else I've done. Um, so I would say those, uh, that, that time, uh, writing programs on the ZX spectrum when I was, uh, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18 years old was the, was the best investment because it opened up the doors for everything I've done since. Mm. Um, if you could have dinner with three people alive or dead, who would they be? Um, The most interesting people, let me see. So uh, I suppose Elon Musk would be would be very interesting. Um, Barack Obama and probably Bill Gates. Maybe that's too predictable as a computer scientist, but probably Bill Gates. I think the Bill Gates one, if you'd asked me, about a year ago, I wouldn't probably wouldn't have included Bill Gates, but because of the whole COVID situation, uh, I think his views on uh, vaccines and medicines and stuff would be very current and interesting at the moment. So um, I actually, the, while his views in computer science would be interested, actually, I'd be more interested in what he's thinking about uh, pandemics and things at the moment. That would be interesting, actually. Yeah, and like I mean, he was the first. Well, not the first, but he he kind of predicted, you know, the whole pandemic and you know the way it can happen, and it's just happening now. So yeah, oh, that'll be a fascinating conversation. Yeah, I mean, he really highlighted it um, a few years ago when, yeah. when nobody much was talking about it, and his foundation, uh, him and his wife's foundation, are investing heavily in vaccines and preparing production facilities uh for when we hopefully have the vaccine uh so they can ramp it up uh so i i think he would be uh very current that would be interesting yeah no that's that's a good one um if you could master any three skills instantly what would they be three skills um well this is what a skill you can never get to the end of so i i think uh I, I'd love to be better at math, so, but I'm pretty good at math, but you can always be better. So I'd like to be better at math. Um, so um, what other skills? Music. Music. I, I, yeah, I can't, I can't sing. I can't play an instrument. Um, I'd really like to be able to do that. That's, that's something that I just, I don't, I don't have that talent. Um so three things, is it? Three things. One more. Yes, one more. Music. Um, more math. Um, well, I think two will do. Yeah, I'd like. To, I suppose I'd like to. Um, I'd like to spend more time on on art. I I I did a I did some of it at school, and then I just haven't had time ever since. Uh, be nice, nice to be better to to spend a bit more time at that. Hmm. Um, and I suppose like I play as a kind of a hobby. I play backgammon, so I'd like to be better at backgammon as well. Um, when you think of the word successful, who comes to mind? I mean, I suppose the the obvious one is kind of um, you know Nelson Mandela. Maybe that's pre- predictable, but yeah, the the impact that he had uh, in South Africa was incredible. Um, and, and worldwide, I suppose. 
um, yeah, huge, somebody with a huge impact. Yes, Mandela. What have you changed your mind on recently? What have I changed my mind on? Um, I suppose the thing that's been subject of most discussions uh, in this house over the summer has been COVID inevitably. So as we've got more information about COVID, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, involved in a lot of conversations about, you know, what's the right approach, uh, even questions like, will we, will we be back in class in September? And mm-hmm. those things have been changing so much. Will there be a second wave? Excuse me. Um, uh, those things have been changing so much uh, over the last six months. I suppose that's the area that my mind has uh, changed most rapidly on recently. Mm-hmm. Um, what else was going to ask you? Oh, yeah. In the last five years, what belief, behavior or habit has had the most positive influence on your life? I suppose keeping going at things uh perseverance um so writing the book took an awful lot of it was very time consuming uh effort and took takes a lot of kind of um working on your own individually and then i took on the head of school role last september and that was a massive learning experience and a lot of new things that i had to do um so I suppose just keeping at it uh, and 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 trying to be persistent and patient. Um, uh, I, I feel with the, with, the, with the keys to getting through that, you know, uh, the, those two things: getting the book finished and and uh, getting the um, uh, getting through uh, the experience as 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 head of school. Um, just trying to 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 keep calm and carry on you know keep keep working at it be, be, be uh persistent and perseverance you know um i think you know it's, it's it's always tempting to think that uh you know the first thing you try is is going to go great um things aren't normally like that you know you have to just keep going and keep trying and um persevere i i think i think perseverance is a a, a great attribute for somebody to have hmm. um just a couple more questions for you so when you were writing the book it took you three years to write um i'm curious to know what kind of three biggest lessons what, what were the three biggest takeaways from that book so based on your research like what did you learn from all your kind of findings um yeah what are your kind of three biggest lessons that you took from the book lessons for me mm-hmm. um I suppose how rapidly things have changed uh, in the last 70 years. Um, when I, as I, as I did, so I knew the outline of the pro of the, the story for the book or, or before I started writing it, I knew the kind of superstructure and I knew quite a lot of the stories that I wanted to tell, but as I did the research, you get into more detail. Um, and particularly the, characters in the book the inventors uh from the period of the 1940s 1950s um i became kind of more familiar with them as people Mm -hmm. as opposed to just kind of um figures of computer science 
And when you start to understand those people and, and the world in which they operated, um, suddenly, to me, that time period felt much closer than it had before. And I was kind of going, there's a bunch of these ideas that we're only now really exploiting that these geniuses came up with in the 40s and 50s. They actually had a lot of this figured out and they didn't have the compute power and they didn't have the time and things to really mine those ideas. Um, so those figures from the 40s and 50s, um, hugely, I, I hadn't appreciated how influential they were, but I hadn't in in my mind that, that period, time frame since then and now has kind of uh, collapsed. Um, that really isn't that long, hmm. you know, in terms of, you're thinking about, you know, in the book, I talk about first algorithms from 3000 years ago. So they were written and scribed on wet clay tablets in ancient Mesopotamia, Babylonia, 3000 years ago. So um, those are the first algorithms were written back then. Uh, but then you have this kind of 70 year period where things have just changed radically with the invention of computer and the advancement of society and stuff. So, um, to me, that that seventy years is is just compressed, and it's kind of we talked about. Are you concerned? Are you worried? Earlier, it's you know if this rate of change continues for the next seventy, um, it's uh, it's going it's going to be quite a roller coaster ride, I think. Wow! Um, yeah. So, so, yeah. So that, that I suppose that perspective mm -hmm. is one of the surprises for me from writing the book. Mm -hmm. Um, just two more questions for you. So imagine that you're dying and you have no material wealth. You're allowed to pass on one or two pieces of thoughtful and useful advice to your young adult children. This is the only inheritance that you can leave behind. What would your one to two piece of advice be so that they could apply to, into their own lives? I suppose um, do things you enjoy. And these aren't in order. As, uh, <laughs> friends and family, the importance of friends and family. I suppose you talked about don't like things, things don't uh, often don't work out the way you expect. Um, and that's kind of um, that's, that's no fault of your own. That's just life. You know, things, things evolve in different ways. So you kind of, I suppose the phrase, you got to roll with the punches and, um, adapt as, as things go go along you know it's it's um it's very rare for somebody to be able to plot everything out for a for a long period um you got to be able to adapt and change mm -hmm. and the final question for you is what is your definition of chasing passion so for me chasing passion would be about following uh the things that you're interested in that you're excited about um that you enjoy doing that you you think are really important um so i've talked a lot about uh, working on things that i've enjoyed doing but there's the other side is, is things that you you feel are really important and are worthwhile to do and you know that you feel will make it make a difference you know we've talked a lot about the kind of research side of things um but you know i spend quite a bit of time teaching um and i i feel that's kind of my opportunity to to give back um I, I find i always feel that research is quite a selfish uh, exercise you're following your ideas you're following your innovations um 
but teaching is quite a generous activity. You're there to help other people learn, to help other people understand. And to, to me, that's quite a, a giving thing. Um, so, you know, uh, in, in terms of chasing passion, um, chasing your research ideas is maybe selfish and chasing your teaching ideas is kind of generous. So it's, it's, it's important to be able to, to give back. I love it. Well, Chris, it was an absolute pleasure talking to you. And, you know, just before we finish up, where's a good place to go? Where's a good place to learn more about you to see what you're up to? Where should people go? Um, so I have a website, chrisblakely.com, that gives more information on the book. Um, um, I have an academic uh, site on the ucd.ie uh, slash chrisblakely. Um, that provides more information on, on my academic work, uh, published research papers. And those are probably the, the two best places to go. And of course, get the book. Get the book. <laughs> and anything else you want to mention? Anything else you want to say? Anything else you want to... Any words of wisdom that you want to embark on? And yeah, anything at all? Um no, I, I, I just to say I really enjoyed uh, being on the podcast with you. It's really interesting questions, tough ones there at the end as well, made me think. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm going to have to reflect myself now after this and think, <laughs> think, think about these big questions again. So no, very much appreciate uh, you inviting me along, and uh, thanks very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode, and I really hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the show notes on the website ChasingPassionPodcast.com. Just before we finish up, would you consider leaving a short review on Apple Podcast? This will take less than 60 seconds and it'll help me out so much. You can find a link for Apple Podcast in the episode description or just search Chasing Passion on Apple Podcast and you'll find it right there. If you do enjoy the podcast, give it a share. Tell your friends. It will be super, super helpful. Thanks so much for listening and have a great day.